Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Joe McCormick. Your other hosts, Robert Lamb and Christian Sager, are out of the office this week. So we decided to air an update to one of our October classics from last year, The Will of the Wisp. So first you're going to hear the original episode that Robert and I recorded last October about this very weird and wonderful historical phenomenon. And after that, I'm going to read some messages we received from listeners about their own reported experiences with the ghost fire of the wilderness. So be sure to stick around at the end for more. And without further ado, let's follow the light into the marsh. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. So, Robert. Yes. I want you to put yourself in a scenario. Okay. All right. I'm doing it. You are a peasant in medieval England. Ooh. All right. It's so, a rough place to start, but I'm with you. Yeah. It's So, I, I know it's rough, uh, but you're a peasant in medieval England in, in sort of the fen land. Oh, okay. So, there, there's some marshes all around you. And this is a time and place where, for your life, uh, the the world is sort of alive with magical beings. So who knows if there's a fairy or a goblin hiding under a rock or in a bush over by the side of the road. Who knows? There are lots of things out there that you just don't understand. It's a world lit only by fire. It's a demon-haunted world. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I think that's a perfect way of putting it. Um, So you're out one night returning home from church. Okay. And dusk is coming on. And as you're walking your way through the path that winds along the marshlands at night and the crickets are chirping and you hear the frogs, you suddenly see something kind of strange. Off, off to your left, sort of in the, in, uh, right at the edge of your field of vision, uh, you see a bluish looking flame that's just hovering over the ground that, that's sort of beyond where you can see exactly where it is. It's, it's among some trees and some, uh, some marsh grasses. Now what do you do? Do you just continue on your path or do you walk over to see what it is? Ooh, uh, well can I do, uh, let me do a perception check. Okay. <laughs> uh, roll, roll your d20. Ah, <laughs> uh, well, um, I'm, if I'm seeing a, basically a ghostly blue flame mm-hmm. uh, that's just hovering in the air. I'm thinking I'm going to want to avoid anything to do with that. Because, oh, okay. Because if it's some sort of supernatural entity at night, uh, it's probably up to no good. It's I'm probably better off just sticking to the course and going straight home. Well, you're fantastic at resisting temptation. Congratulations. <laughs> you're incurious, proud of it, and you're going to live a live to a ripe old age in the solid knowledge that you just didn't check things out. Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> because I've probably heard enough stories. Like, how does every weird horror story begin, every strange folklore? It begins with that guy getting off the beaten path, moving out of the path and going into the wilderness and maybe following some sort of strange flame. Well, okay, let me try you again then. Okay. Let's say that we we do the same scenario, but you've already gotten lost. You're on your way home from church, dusk is coming on, you've lost the path, and suddenly you are lost in the marshlands and you, you can't find your way back to the path. Okay. But up ahead, you do see a light. Uh, you see a, a flame bobbing that's just above the horizon ahead of you, and you're not quite sure what it is. Now, do you go toward the light or not? 
Well, I'm lost, so that light might very well be somebody's campfire. That might be just a sign of humans out here. So I should, yeah, maybe I should head that way because either that either they're in the clear or maybe they can help me get out. Right. It could be a traveler's lantern. Right. It could lead you back to the path and get you on your way home and, and out of this muck. So let's say you follow it for a while, but you can't ever seem to catch up with it. And you just keep going farther and farther along in the marsh, but it's always just out of where you can reach it or, or get a good look at exactly what it is. Hmm. Do you keep following well, the more I follow, the more I'm probably going to feel like I'm being manipulated and misled yeah. on a winding goat trail to nowhere. So, uh, which granted, maybe that's a, a perfect metaphor for life, but, uh, I'm, I'm probably going to get a little frustrated. Yeah, but what other choice do you that's have? Right. Now I'm, you're lost in the marsh and you better keep following. Yeah, I can't go back. It's just as much trouble to go back as it is to push forward. And maybe if I hurry a little bit, I can actually catch that darn thing. Okay. So let's say you're trying to catch it. Unfortunately, you keep coming up on it thinking you're just about to get to it but it goes away Ah. and eventually you don't see it anymore at all and you're there alone in the dark stuck in some quicksand Ah, quicksand. in the marsh and what are you going to do well you're going to stay stuck struggle (laughs) you struggle that's how you get out of quicksand no it's not it's not at all do we have an episode on quicksand I don't think we do yet, but it's a fascinating topic. Yeah. yeah, maybe we should explore that sometime. Well, if you ever find yourself trapped in quicksand, whether you're in a marsh and you have been led there by a ghost light or not, don't struggle. Oh, that's why I have these ferrets in my backpack. They're going to help me out. <laughs> That'll just work you deeper into the into the muck. No, that's not what you want to do. But anyway, I've been describing a scenario that might sound kind of outlandish to you people at home, but I think this type of story was very common to people of, say, uh, Europe in the Middle Ages or uh, actually to folklore all over the world in one mm-hmm. form or another. There, there will be stories that bear similarities to this, that there's a glowing entity or some kind of flame that looks like a lantern or like a, a blue luminescence that's just hovering out of your vision. And if you if you try to get to it, you can never quite catch it. Yeah. What is this thing? It is the Will of the Wisp. That's right. And it goes by a number of names as we'll discuss, but it's the, it's, it's that, uh, that false fire, right? That Ignis Fatus, right? Yeah. And it's fatuous. Fatuous. That's what I think. It's, it's Ignis, so fire. I know Ignis, yeah. Yeah. And then F-A-T-U-U-S. That makes me think fatuous, like you're being fatuous, Ah, you're being foolish. Yes, so this is uh it is it's the swamp light, the marsh light, yeah. the fairy light. Uh it's this ghostly luminescence that appears typically in marshlands and swamplands. Yeah, byways, fins, marshes, the the lonely roads, the places that maybe you wouldn't want to be stuck at night. You you'll see this strange glowing entity. Um what is it? Is it a mischievous spirit? Yeah, oftentimes it is, uh, it's seen as this, either a mischievous spirit or sometimes an outright demonic, demonic entity that, uh, ends up leading humans astray. If you try and follow it, you can't quite catch it. And eventually you're going to wind up in the quicksand, 
just lost in the wilderness or over a cliff, falling off a cliff. Yeah. Walking straight into hell. Who knows what? But it, it's leading you off the path. Like I, I, you made a great comparison. It's like a bad GPS system. Yeah. <laughs> Do you remember that? Isn't there an episode of The Office where yes. the GPS tells them to drive the car across a lake? And yeah. It's try that to kind of it. scenario. Yeah. Because also sometimes you see uh, motifs where it's the it's the light that's uh, representing it's like fairy gold or something. So yeah. ooh, if I follow it, I'll get some riches like then you can't reach it because it's like the other end of a rainbow right yeah and this lore comes from all, all across time all over the world it's very common uh one common feature of the the ghost light or the glowing entity will the wisp lore is that the lights tend to recede as you mm-hmm. approach them you, you can never quite get to them or get a hold of them and they draw the traveler farther and farther off course as they go uh, another common feature is the color, and this is interesting. So sometimes people just re- report various types of light, but it's very often described as blue or bluish green. Yes. And uh, in the words of one scientist who studied the phenomenon, Alan A. Mills, who we're going to quote later in the episode, he called it, quote, an ephemeral bluish luminous exhalation associated with marshy places. That's his will-o'-the-wisp definition. So it's it's instantly identifiable as as something that's it's just not a torch. It's not a lantern. It's something else, something per- perhaps magical. Yeah. And so we have various names for this phenomenon. Uh, I'll, I'm not going to run through all of them, uh, but uh, just some of them. For instance, uh, in, in the English traditions, you have Dicko Tuesday, <laughs> um, Hinky Puck. Uh, Hinky Puck, by the way, is Hinky a... Hinky Punk? Punk? Oh, yes, Hinky Punk uh, is a sprite with uh, only one leg, and it carries a candle to mislead travelers. Ah, uh, yeah. Um, you have other names like Corpse Candle, Elf Fire, Hob Lantern, Hobby Lantern, Fire Drake, Jack-O-Lantern... Ah, so we're we're seeing a convergence here with like Will o' the Wisp, Jack o' Lantern, uh, maybe Dick o' Tuesday is something else. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> anyway, the the idea here is that this first part is is actually a name. It's like Jack or yeah. Will. The, these are characters who uh, have emerged in the lore of people trying to explain what happens when they see these ghost lights in the marshes, but it's a character who carries some kind of light or torch with them. The wisp idea being like a wisp of sticks that would be a torch. Right. I mean, it's the idea that there seems to be a consciousness behind it, a will behind it. It seems to be an entity of some sort. Uh, one that uh, comes up a lot uh, is Will the Smith, not Will Smith, our beloved national treasure, <laughs> but uh, but uh, rather the soul of a debauched human who has given who's given a second chance at life in order to redeem his soul. Okay. Only he screwed up again, and so now he can't get into heaven or hell. So he has to wander the earth, and Satan gave him a glowing coal to warm himself, which he uses to lure other victims to his doom to their doom because he's just a horrible individual. So he's walking around with some hellfire in yeah. the marshes, uh, trying to get revenge on humanity. Right, and you see a number of different variations on Will the Smith, where it's some sort of immortal wanderer, some sort of a spirit uh, entity that can't get into heaven or hell. Um, you also have in Scotland the Spunkies. In Ireland, you have Foxfire or William with the Little Flame, which is essentially Will the Smith. In Germany, you have Blood. You have uh, Dickie Potent. Wait, hold on. Blood, just B L U D. Yeah, okay. And then there is, of course, uh, Earlicht. 
uh, and this is, uh, uh, the Ehrlich is actually, uh, as, as the Willow the Wisp entity, is the subject of an Arnold Bachlin painting, as well as the Klaus Schulz album. So, huh. there you go. Um, and you see a lot of accounts of this uh, phenomenon from, from Germany, for sure. Uh, in France, there's uh, Saint-Yan-Yetad, which in the folklore of Brittany is a type of elf, and they dance together at night with candles on their fingertips, each spinning independently, and any mortal who happens upon them uh, becomes disoriented and confused. So it's yeah. kind of like the the, the, the the example in The Hobbit, right, where they see some fire in the woods and they follow it out there, and it's uh, elves having their, their mischief uh, there in the woods, and it's just uh, disorienting. Huh, yeah, yeah. like they're... Uh, they're- I imagine there's some elfin debauchery going on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, uh, Tolkien doesn't get into it as much, but you know, they they get up to some <laughs> weird stuff. Uh, in Finland, you have uh, Likiko, which means the, the flaming one, and this is interesting because in this you have the transformed soul of a child that's buried in the forest and now wanders with a flame at night, but also serves as a guardian. Uh, of wild animals and plants that are in the woods. So it's kind of almost like a Swamp Thing vibe going on here, where it's the the spirit guardian of of the environment. Um, You see see versions in uh, Native American traditions. Uh, You see uh, the the one I ran across uh, from the Penobscot uh, Native American tribe, uh, and the the name for this is uh, Eshudate. There's also uh, Kanza Perry, and this is uh, something that uh, exists in the folklore of the uh, Chirmus and Mari people. That's a Finno-Ugric ethnic group. You see, uh, you also see it in the uh, Amazon basin in the uh, form of Betata. Oh, and this one's a really good one. This is in uh, uh, South America, in Chile, the uh, a, a creature known as Alicanto. And this is a night spirit in the shape of a glowing metallic bird. What? Yeah. It lives in the mountains and it's said to feast upon gold and silver veins. Wow. Yeah. So if you glimpse its light at night and you're, you know, you're kind of a greedy individual, you might uh, want to follow it and find that rich mining deposit. But Alicanto, uh, is, is hip to your, your scheme here and will probably lure you over the edge of a cliff instead. Oh, this fits with the same stuff you would encounter in Europe about sometimes the will of the wisp being the guardian of a treasure. Yeah. Uh, not just luring you off the path, but like standing guard over where the gold is hidden. Exactly. And I, and I, and I, I, I wonder to, to what extent it's just a continuation of European uh, beliefs in the, the new world there. I imagine that's very much the case. Uh, but there are also plenty of ghost lights in, in Asian folklore. In Bengal traditions, you have Elea, which is the uh, name given to uh, unexplained, strange uh, um, martial woodlights there. Okay. And then, of course, uh, outside of folk uh, folklores and folk tales, we have uh, aversions in our more recent uh, uh, media as well. Right. Uh, well, I mean, I would call Dungeons and Dragons perfectly acceptable folklore. <laughs> Yes, and I, you know, for a lot of people, this may be one's first encounter with with Will o' the Wisp or Will o' Wisps, as they're called there. Uh, in, in case you're a Dungeons and Dragons fan or have any uh, familiarity there, uh, their alignment is chaotic evil. Whoa! So they are bad news. They're yeah. not just a little mischievous; they are awful. Well, if they were just a little mischievous, what would they be? Chaotic neutral? Yeah, I think they would be more. I would I would say more chaotic neutral if that were the case. But they are just completely like evil, mischievous, yeah. mischievous. Uh, they have a challenge rating of two, so they're not too bad. But get this, they have a dexterity stat of twenty eight. 
uh, that's like, like generally 18 is an exceedingly high level for a, a normal humanoid. So they have crazy dexterity that gives them a plus nine on all dexterity checks. <laughs> and according to the most recent monster manual, uh, they're quote, the souls of the evil beings that perished in anguish or misery as they wandered in forsaken lands permeated with magical powers. And they use the, the, the usual lure people to their doom act in the game. Plus they can shock victims for 2d8 damage. They can drain life. And sometimes in the Dungeons and Dragons uh, world, they align themselves with hags or black dragons or evil cultists, uh, in order to quote, drink the agony of slaughter. So, <laughs> so they're pretty cool. I, I kind of want to, uh, bust one out in, uh, in my game now. Well, that's great, and that does mirror some of the the folkloric tradition, like the idea that they might be an unrighteous spirit that's left wandering the world. So they might be, you know, uh, a person who's just rendered spiritually unclean, maybe by having died unbaptized in Christian tradition or something. Uh, yeah. Or, or maybe they're a you know a sinful person who can't get into heaven or hell, like we talked to, uh, like we talked about with Will the Smith, and the the titular Will and Will of the Wisp. <laughs> Uh, but the Will of the Wisp also shows up in, in plenty of later literature, you know, in some classic English poetry. You'll get references to the Will of the Wisp, like in The Rime of the Ancient Mariner by Coleridge. Uh, there is, uh, there is a scene that describes ghost lights out on the sea that says, about, about, in reel and rout, the death fires danced at night, the water like a witch's oils burnt green and blue and white. Ooh, nice. Yeah, I like that. Uh, there, there's Will the Wisp in Paradise Lost, too. In John Milton's <laughs> Paradise Lost, there is the scene where the snake in the Garden of Eden is, a, is attempting to tempt Eve, attempting to tempt, is, is trying to get Eve to come and eat of the fruit, you know, the forbidden fruit. And it compares the snake's temptation of Eve to a will of the wisp in, in the sense that both would be leading someone astray. Uh, huh. this is in book nine, starting around line 631. And, uh, so it compares the snake to as when a wandering fire compact of unctuous vapor with the night condenses and the cold environs round kindled through agitation to a flame, which oft, they say, some evil spirit attends, hovering and blazing with delusive light, misleads the amazed night wanderer from his way to bogs and mires, and oft through pond or pool, they're swallowed up and lost from sucker far. Now, this is this is interesting, and I think potentially telling for later on, in that um, Milton is describing a supernatural entity by comparing it to Will o' the Wisp. Yeah. So keep that in mind as we yeah, start talking yeah. about Will o' the Wisp as a natural phenomenon. Right. I mean, he's describing a thing from a magical story in terms <laughs> of the Will o' the Wisp, meaning that the Will o' the Wisp must have been a thing that people were so intimately familiar with, it could be used as a reference point. Yes. Yeah. I, mean, yeah, I, I, I would think for modern people, you'd, you'd be more likely to go the other way. Like you'd compare the Will o' the Wisp to something in the Bible that people might be more familiar with but he goes the other way around yeah as if to say this is the thing that the average reader will have a familiarity with and then can therefore use as a reference point for this mythic thing yeah but of course it's not just the stuff of fairy tales and and ancient literature and fiction and magical storytelling there are many like sober secular accounts of the ignis fatuous 
or the Will of the Wisp uh, throughout world literature, including scientific literature. Mm-hmm. For example, Isaac Newton mentions the Will of the Wisp as if it were a commonplace occurrence in his third book of optics. He says, The ignis fatuus is a vapor shining without heat, and is there not the same difference between this vapor and flame as between rotten wood shining without heat and burning coals of fire? Hmm. Uh, which is interesting because there Newton is attempting to distinguish actual physical characteristics of the ignis fatuus. Like, uh, it's not like flame because it lacks heat. So, yeah, you'd get pretty often people making sort of secular material physical observations of these things as if it's just a phenomenon that they were trying to catalog and understand. So very often you'd hear about this this sort of hovering blue flame near the ground. But some accounts differ. There are other types of appearances that people also categorized as will-o'-the-wisp. One comes from a first-hand account by the English folklorist Jabez Allies. I wonder if I'm saying that name right, but uh, he had a treatise called Ignis Fatuus or Will-o'-the-wisp and the fairies from 1846. And I'm just going to read a piece of this uh, in this story he gives about how he witnessed the -the will-o'-the-wisp one night. He says... Sometimes it was only like a flash in the pan on the ground. At other times it rose up several feet and fell to the earth and became extinguished. And many times it proceeded horizontally from 50 to 100 yards in an undulating motion, like the flight of the green woodpecker, and about as rapid. And once or twice it proceeded with considerable rapidity in a straight line upon or close to the ground. The light of this ignis fatuus, or rather of these ignes fatui, or fatui, <laughs> uh, was very clear and strong, much bluer than that of a candle, and very like that of an electric spark. And some of them looked larger and as bright as the star Sirius. Of course, they looked dim when seen in ground fogs, but there was not any fog on the night in question. There was, however, a muddy closeness of the atmosphere, and at the same time a considerable breeze from the southwest. These will-o'-the-wisps which shot horizontally invariably proceeded before the wind towards the northeast. That's interesting because it's a very you know, scientifically minded uh, um and practical response yeah. to viewing this. Yeah, he's describing it in terms of electricity, mm-hmm. uh, describing the color and sort of the position and the motion and speed of motion, and then explaining that it follows the pattern of the wind. Yeah, and and I, I but I do love the fact that he's he's really standing back and and taking a serious, calm approach to it. Because one of the uh, accounts that I was looking at, an earlier account from uh, 1598, traveling German lawyer uh, Hinsner Paul Hertzner. Uh, who wrote about his travels in England, and uh, he wrote the following uh, about a journey from Canterbury to Dover. He said, quote, There were a great many jack-o'-lanterns, uh, so that we were quite seized with horror and amazement. Um, <laughs> and, of course, if you're seized with horror and amazement, yeah. you get into that whole realm of, like, what am I perceiving? How is my mind perceiving it? And then how am I recalling that memory and altering it? I mean, the you know, part and partial to any... St- paranormal experience where the experience is valid, but there are varying mental factors that are going to play into your interpretation of the event, particularly if 
Englishmen have been telling you tales of the strange yeah. lights in in the uh, in the swamplands and what they represent. Yeah, and of course everybody's got an interpretive framework that they bring to seeing things like this. Like I'm sure that our German traveler friend brought a magical interpretive lens right. to it, saying there's a spirit out here. It wishes us harm. It might be that Dungeons and Dragons chaotic evil spirit. I need to stay away. Uh, uh, Jabez allies brought a a more secular approach to it. He said at the end of his recollection of the different events that he witnessed, he says, from all the circumstances stated, it appears probable that these meteors rise in exhalations of electric and perhaps other matter out of the earth, particularly in or near the winter season, and that they generally occur a day or two after a considerable rain and on change from a cold to a warmer atmosphere. Now, whether all that is true, it, we don't know. It might not mm-hmm. be the case that you're more likely to see it under those circumstances. But it's interesting that he's tr- trying to narrow down the physical causes that that would create this. And he, of course, tries to blame it on electricity. Right. Which would make sense if you're writing in the 1830s or 1840s when, you know, electricity is a very interesting thing. Yeah. And it's certainly the the uh, the difference between magic and electricity. There's a lot of crossover and understanding of it. Electricity is very much this uh, this this lofty, uh, partially understood uh, concept. Yeah. And then there was another thing that I looked at that was uh, an article on Ignis Fatuous from the Scientific Monthly in 1919, and it just made some observations. For example, the the flames of the Ignis Fatuous uh, used to appear very consistently in some locations. So there are places where you could just expect to see them, and mm-hmm. if you went there, you 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 would probably see them. And that they gave off neither heat nor odor, and that they don't set fire to the things around them. Okay. Of course, granted, you're talking about marshlands and swamplands in many situations here. So yeah, but th- I mean, there should be lots of dead grass and stuff like that. I mean, yeah. it, it, it would seem like if you're dealing with a hot flame, you would expect it to set fire to something. So that's going to throw a wrench in a lot of the explanations right. that people have given for this. So the main point of of giving all these uh, stories about what people saw is that it's not just made up. I mean, clearly a lot of the explanation of what causes the will of the wisp is is magical thinking and and fairy fairy stories and things like that. But the phenomenon itself, I think we can be pretty confident, is real. It was actually referring to a thing people witnessed firsthand. Uh, because why would there be so many stories from so many different places? Especially and so many from varied commentators too. So yeah, it's yeah. not just the religious or the f- folkloric. It's also, hot, you know, scientifically minded individuals who are just talking about the lights in the woods that yeah. simply occur and that everyone. It's has as if seen. everybody knows what you're talking about. Yeah. And of course, we'll get into this later. But one of the disconnects is that we don't see lights in the woods and strange lights in the marsh all the time, like we apparently used to. So it's harder for us, A, to put ourselves in that world, in that mindset, and also, as we'll discuss, harder to go out and try and study something that doesn't seem to be occurring anymore, or at least occurring with the same frequency. All right, on that note, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will look at some of the possible scientific explanations for this phenomenon. All right, we're back discussing Will-O-The-Wisp, Jack-O-Lantern, Will-The-Smith, 
uh, hinky punk, uh, whatever you want to call <laughs> that strange glow uh, in the marshlands, in the woods, in the swamp. Hinky punk is a really great personal insult that I've never heard used before. Yeah, I, I, I might have to adopt it when I have my son in the car. Because uh, you normally oh, I just yeah. call people uh, uh, Dumbledores or use, <laughs> or use the word duck uh, here or there. But, oh, that's uh, pretty good. But maybe hinky punk. Uh, we should make a list of the great insults that we come up with from our research on these podcasts. Because uh, when I was doing an episode a couple of years ago, forward thinking, we came across the term uh, aggregated diamond nano rods in a material <laughs> science context. But man, what a great thing to call a person, a nano rod. Uh, I've, I've kept it with me ever since. And now hinky punk goes on the list as well. God, look at that person driving like a complete hinky punk nano rod. Okay, but now we need to bring it back to talk about what on earth could be the actual scientific material cause of all these phenomena that people have called Will of the Wisp. And there are a couple of things that make this part of the discussion difficult. One of the problems is that, unfortunately, most research into Will of the Wisp has been coming up with physical explanations that try to match historical descriptions hmm. because a will of the wisp has never to my knowledge been captured sampled measured really or even satisfactorily recorded on film in any useful way i think there are some claims that some people sort of got a photograph of one but not in any way that's useful for like a, a spectral analysis or anything right. like that so we've been just trying to figure out ways to match people's descriptions of what they saw, and most of these descrip- descriptions come from more than a 100 years ago. So already you're having a problem here because there's nothing direct you can compare your examples to. You just have to experiment and say, well, does this look like what people were talking about back then? Right. Uh, then there's another problem in scientific explanations of the will of the wisp, which is that it's possible that similar but different phenomena have sometimes been grouped together under the category of Will of the Wisp. So there could be lots of different types of ghost lights and various luminescent events that occurred in the marshes or in the wilderness in the past, and that people assumed, well, they're pretty similar, they're they're all the same thing, and that they weren't actually all the same thing. Yeah, I mean, especially if, if the phenomenon that's occurring is a product of the environment, it seems entirely likely you would have a different phenomenon occurring, say, in the mountains of Chile, as opposed to the swamplands, um, you know, of, of Italy. Yeah. Uh, and another aspect, and this is my read on it, too, is that so many of these explanations are taking, you know, meticulous care with chemical or physical properties that may be in play without taking into account, of course, the, the, the mental aspects of it, the psychological aspects, and again, some of the, the, the problems with memory and perception uh, that I mentioned earlier. So you're, which is part of it, you know, you're, you're just looking at a possible physical chemical uh, reaction that's going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's not like like we're saying, it's not a photograph. Right. I mean, there's it's not objectively recorded, even by people who are trying to bring a scientific or skeptical mindset to these things. They're they're still sort of interpreting with a cultural script, like you're saying, mm-hmm. uh, or a, a framework that they're working from. They know this is a phenomenon people have, ex- have observed before. It usually is described to look like X, so they're already bringing that to the table when they're seeing it. 
All right, well, let's uh, let's roll through some of them. Let's start with electricity. We mentioned electricity earlier. Yeah, that was in, in Jabez Ally's account. Mm-hmm. He suggested, quote, these meteors rise in exhalations electric, uh, of electric matter out of the Earth. And some people have tried to offer the hypothesis of, like, ball lightning or other aberrant electrical phenomena to explain what's going on when you see lights in the marsh. Uh, Alessandro Volta according to one source, apparently thought that the Ignis Fatuous could be explained by way of interaction between electrical currents and what he called inflammable air, which I think is referring to methane, which Mm -hmm. we will definitely get to in a minute here. But this, I think, has been rejected by modern people who have looked into the phenomenon. Uh, Alan A. Mills, who wrote a couple of papers on this, on the subject of Will of the Wisp, didn't think that the electrical explanations really fit what people were describing when they saw Will of the Wisp and saw and and explained what they saw. It just doesn't sound like the same kind of thing. Right. Now, as far as the next idea, bioluminescence goes, there's some interesting ideas here, some more plausible than others. Right. So bioluminescence, of course, is the natural illumination of animals mm-hmm. or of, of life forms, and not necessarily just animals. It could be microbial life. So fireflies are bioluminescent. They can light up in the dark. And I can definitely see that there may have been some cases in the past where people saw fireflies and then they had a pre-existing cultural script of Ignis Fatuous, mm-hmm. and they say, I saw it. I saw the light in the marsh when they were really seeing fireflies. That's possible, but it doesn't seem like fireflies can explain all of these instances because they don't really closely enough match what people are usually describing. Um, and it just seems like that could maybe explain some instances, but probably not most. Yeah. Also, if you're used to seeing the fireflies, you yeah. know, it seems like it would maybe make more sense if you were a traveler to an area where, oh, I've never seen a firefly before. And then there are these random pinpoints of light in the uh, the wilderness or potentially in, in the Asian model, because uh, in uh, in parts of Asia, you see fireflies, uh, particularly in Thailand, I believe, that um, that light up in unison in a way that we don't see. Uh, so much in the United States. Yeah. Um, uh, there, there's also fungus, right? Yes. Uh, there, oh, in particular, a type of fungus that keeps uh, popping up in these uh, these theories is armillaria. This is a parasitic kind of fungi. It's also known as honey fungus. Oh, that's a cuter name. It sounds delicious. It's a little tangy and sweet. Um, so this could be responsible for some of these apparitions. Some uh, species of armillaria are bioluminescent. And, you know, if growing in just the right place and, per- and perceived in just the right uh, atmosphere could be seen uh, as a will of the wisp. Now, one of the people writing on this subject that we read, uh, Jan Zelasowitz, commented that sometimes, though probably not in most cases, but in some rare occasions, w- people might have even been talking about owls. Yeah, because on one hand, you know, owl, nocturnal fl- flyer, very silent, very quiet, kind of ghostly. Just to perceive an owl, uh, even in the daytime, it's 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 just something slightly supernatural about it. Yeah. So you and especially if the moonlight is catching gray or white plumage just right, or if the owl has trapped in the feathers in its wings some rotting wood uh, or a bioluminescent fungus, like if it's been rolling in the fungus mm-hmm. and the fungus glows and then the owl swoops around in the dark, this may possibly explain some instances of what people are seeing. But it seems similar to other things we've been talking about so far, the fireflies and things like that. It might explain 
some cases that people map onto the existing cultural script of the Ignis Fatuous, but it just doesn't sound very much like what people are usually describing. Yeah, it doesn't seem like a good excuse, a universal excuse for yeah. what's going on. And it just doesn't seem really all that common. Mm-hmm. Now, an- another version of this is, of course, that they could just, you could just be perceiving a reflected light from another source. Yeah, one great example of this is, I, I was recently in, uh, in Big Bend National Park in Texas, and mm-hmm. near that, we went through the town of Marfa, Texas, which is famous for the Marfa ghost lights. Have you ever heard of these? Are these railroad related, or are they just, uh, are they? Uh, not that I know of. Because there are a lot of traditions, uh, I think even around my own hometown in Tennessee, uh, tales of ghostly lights out on the railroad tracks that uh, are kind of a will-of-the-wisp type of scenario, but I think are generally related to uh, uh, reflected lights from other sources. Uh, yeah, well, so the Marfa ghost lights are probably not the same phenomenon as will-of-the-wisp because mm-hmm. it's not marshy area, it's, you know, desert, and they, they they seem to be a different kind of thing. They're not really what people are describing there either, but they are a type of ghost light that, from what I've read, a common skeptical response to this is people are just seeing reflected car headlights from like there are cars driving far out in the desert and they get reflected by the atmosphere in a certain way or or somehow end up reflecting their light to people near the town of marfa and they're like wow that's an amazing light i just saw in the desert what could what could explain it or it's campfires huh you know uh i know we're both familiar with the chattanooga tennessee area oh yeah i grew up there yeah well, I've I've definitely driven through Chattanooga on like really dark nights before, and I'll see of what essentially are car lights uh, that are driving up in the, the the hills and the mountains. Oh yeah, but it's dark. It's so dark that for a split second, I see there's some sort of strange light. It must be a UFO or something, and then I realize, oh wait, that's that's a, there's a mountain right there. How disappointing! That's a it's car. Just the mountain people. Yeah. So in our age. That is just so, just full of ubiquitous artificial lighting screwing up, uh, our perception of nighttime. Uh, there's plenty of room for will of the wisps to emerge, uh, that way. Yeah. So electrical phenomenon, bioluminescence or reflected lights, like we said, all of these may account for some small subset of, mm-hmm. of these historical sightings, but they don't really seem to fit the bill in terms of what people usually describe when they talk about the Ignis Fatuous. So what's something that's closer to the traditional description and, and really seems to match? And here we get to the main event, which is marsh gas. Ah, good old, good old marsh gas, good old swamp gas. Unfortunately, as we'll see, this is not without problems of its own. But finally, we're getting into the territory that that could really be a viable explanation. Mm -hmm. So, Robert. Yes. What happens when a body of a dead animal or a bunch of dead plant matter lies down to its final repose in a marsh or a swamp? Oh, well, that's just going to break down. It may sink, too. The breakdown of organic matter, this is part of the swamp marshland ecosystem. Right. And so the decomposition of dead organic matter... Uh, often happens underwater or under damp soil in mm-hmm. these types of environments, in the swamp, in the marsh, in the bog. And what what we would call an anaerobic environment, so that's without access to air. Now, things can decompose with access to air, too. You lay something on the ground in the forest, it'll have uh, a chance for all this air to get at it, and that's a different kind of decomposition than anaerobic decomposition that happens without air. Decomposition that happens without air tends to produce gaseous byproducts, including methane and carbon dioxide. Methane is flammable. 
And if you get any of your home power from natural gas, this is a somewhat similar mixture. It's composed primarily of methane. That's mm-hmm. what's burning with, with that nice blue flame. So many sources treat the matter of the scientifically known, you know, skeptical attitude cause of Will-o'-the-Wisp as pretty much completely settled. It's spontaneous combustion of methane in marsh gas. Just one example is uh, one we looked up together, the Brewer's Dictionary of Phrase and Fable, the entry on Ignis Fatuus. It says, quote, the will the wisp or friar's lantern, a flame-like phosphorescence flitting over marshy ground due to the spontaneous combustion of gases from decaying vegetable matter and deluding people who attempt to follow it, hence any delusive aim or object or some utopian scheme that is utterly impracticable. <laughs> That's kind of a... Kind of a political stance from brewers there. Yeah. But anyway. But it sounds plausible, right? Yeah, it, but On it the also, surface. the way it, it's, the way it presents it is, this is not just one hypothesis that has been offered, but it, it acts as if this is a settled matter. Yeah, it's the spontaneous combustion of marsh gas. Another example would be one scientific paper I found that, uh, said the following, quote, the once widespread sightings of Will of the Wisp, also known as Ignis fatuus, on northern European peatlands were probably the result of methane ebulliations ignited by lanterns or other ignition sources formerly used for nighttime illumination. So, again, they treat it as pretty much settled. It's marsh gas being set on fire, and that's what the Wheel of the Wisp is. But, I don't know, that seems kind of weird to me. I mean, wouldn't people have noticed it had to be set on fire with sparks or lanterns? Yeah, you think the stories would revolve more around some individual uh, wandering out with it with his or her lantern, and then poof, uh, a will-o'-wisp uh, you know, suddenly pops into being right next to you, as opposed to seeing one in the distance. Right, and so the story, I think, is not nearly as settled as many of these older sources would seem to indicate. Because of this big question, what is the source of ignition? Uh, is it really fair to assume that the people who saw these things were constantly inadvertently setting fire to methane bubbles around them without realizing they were doing so? Maybe, again, it's kind of like some of the other things. Maybe in some weird cases, but it kind of seems like a stretch yeah. to say this is the primary phenomenon being described. So here we get to some chemistry where the answer could possibly lie because what you're starting to look for is what could be a chemical spark in the natural environment that could naturally ignite methane gases escaping from a marsh, a marshland. Yeah, but the only thing that comes to mind offhand opposed front, let's see, you have lightning strikes. Yeah. You have uh, spontaneous combustion, which is a possibility with uh, anaerobic uh, situations such as, say, a hay bale. Yeah, uh, uh, but uh, like if the heat builds up in it, it gets really hot. Yeah. Aside from that, the only thing that comes to mind is like a wolf that um, that that uh, that somebody's tied fire to its tail, or you know something of that matter. But yeah, otherwise or maybe then, uh, put some flints to its teeth. Yes. So every time it chomps, it strikes sparks. Mm-hmm. A rock falling off a cliff and just happening to somehow spark on the way down. A guy traveling from the future in a time machine with a flamethrower. Yes. Or just a cigarette. He's just he's just traveling through time. Stops for a smoke in a medieval bog and then continues. But and poof, then oh, the butterfly was, effect. Now the future, we all have frogged frog tongues. Yeah. So in other words, it sounds a little sketchy, right? I mean, yeah. 
we need we need a better uh, ignition system than that. Yeah, and so the ignition system that has long been proposed by people trying to explain the will of the wisp has been phosphorus compounds. So okay. instead of being lit up by a lantern, marsh gas leaking from the ground could be ignited in the presence of oxygen if there were phosphorus compounds in play, for example, phosphine or mm. PH3. Uh, you could also call that hydrogen phosphide or diphosphane, P2H4. So phosphine is a highly toxic gas. In fact, I I saw this mentioned online and I went back and revisited it. You know, if you go back to the beginning of Breaking Bad, right, right at the start, there's a scene where Walter White uses a chemical reaction producing phosphine gas to poison a couple of gangsters. Do you oh, remember this? Okay, now, yeah, now that you mention it, I do. Yeah. Uh, though I've actually read... Uh, chemists looking at that and saying the chemistry of that seems a little bit wrong, but but it, it is true that phosphine is highly toxic. Well, it was a similar theme though that we're seeing here. People sort of shuffle the explanations off to the, the realm of chemistry, yeah. and for most people, that's sufficient. Okay, it's a matter of chemistry. I don't really understand all the ins and outs of chemistry, but it seems like a realm where everything is possible. Everything in the world uh, hinges on chemistry, so well enough. But then when the chemists start breaking it apart these problems emerge. Yeah, and so phosphine is extremely, extremely flammable. It can totally catch on fire at a moment's notice. And then this other compound, uh, the uh, diphosphine, P2H4, is a liquid that will ignite just spontaneously combust when it's exposed to the air. Yeah. So you get this stuff out of its anaerobic environment up to the surface where air comes into contact with it and it just erupts with fire and this ignites the phosphine or the methane itself. Phosphine igniting ignites the methane, and then boom, you've got fire in the gas escaping from the marsh. Yeah, it's been utilized in weapons before, um, kind of hellacious weapons that we tend to shy away from. But, oh, really? I didn't yeah, know that. Yeah, because it just burns in the air. Yeah. Ugh, that's gross. So pho- oh, I guess like phosphorus-based incendiary weapons? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Ugh, that's horrible. But anyway, the idea is that the, the dead, decaying uh, organic matter down under the marsh mm-hmm. releases these gases. It releases phosphine, diphosphine, methane, and the reaction with the air causes ignition. The methane catches on fire. Is this plausible? Well, I think the answer is sort of, but maybe not entirely. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it is, it is apparently true that some microbial life forms can produce these types of phosphorus compounds through the process of decomposition, going to work on, on bones and other organic materials that might be buried down in the swamp. They can release the phosphorus compounds that we've talked about. But other sources have contested the idea of straight-up combustion of uh, methane and other gases, including the phosphine match or the phosphorus-based ignition systems. And there are a few things to consider. One of them is that methane, if ignited by fire, will burn with a what uh, one of the people we read described as a brief, hot, bright flame, which really goes opposite to how people usually describe the will of the wisp. But that's more often described as having a cool, blue luminescence that does not seem to produce any heat or much heat, at least, uh, depending on the source. Yeah, it, the situation is not that Will the Smith lit a fart in the night. It's, <laughs> it's that Will the Smith has some sort of ghostly illumination that is 
seems to be pretty constant, though, though moving. Yeah. Another thing is that people have found that the ignition of phosphine gas mixed with methane results in acrid smoke. This is not a common feature of Will-o'-the-Wisp descriptions. Right. Yeah, because that would be a whole other thing, right? You can imagine the tales would revolve around, oh, there was a campfire in the woods. of It was clearly fairies or elves that had it. No, it's, there's no, no mention of the smoke. Yeah. Um, other questions would be that why is the Will-o'-Wisp often reported to run away when you approach it or then follow you when you don't? The best uh, explanations that I ran across had to do with just complex fluid dynamics of yeah, the situation. Like you're yeah. disturbing the, the mixture of gases in the air as you approach and you just kind of make it waft away by yeah. your movements. Like trying to catch a, 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 a stray bit of cat hair floating in the, in, in the room. You yeah, know? you never can, can you? <laughs> Uh, yeah, and I think that's a perhaps good explanation. But then there's another big one that I think is kind of important. If this is ordinary hot combustion, just like hot flames, like the fire we normally know, why doesn't the flame spread? Like, why doesn't it catch fire to surrounding dead grass and vegetation? Well, my instant response to that would be, in many cases, this is a bog or a marshland. And when's the last time you heard about a, bo- a bog burn- burning down, right? I mean, it's, I think it's still possible for the for the dead plant matter mm-hmm. that's above, you know, whatever kind of damp soil or is there what's poking out above the ground. That seems like that could catch fire, but potentially, yeah. I mean, yeah, but just the the damp environment tends to make me give less credence to that. But but I, I agree. It seems like there would still be the potential for something to catch on fire. Yeah. So there's actually a geologist named Alan A. Mills who did, who wrote a couple of papers on the subject of the ignis fatuus or the will of the wisp and explained that he, based on some analysis he did and some experiments he conducted, he didn't think that the marsh gas explanation cut it. It, right. it just didn't really work. Uh, he claimed that he he tried it. He did an experiment with. Uh, putting a bunch of stuff into a container of damp garden soil peat and rotten compost, and he tried to incubate it in the dark. He did get methane marsh gas out of it, but it did not spontaneously combust. And then he also he tried adding phosphine phosphine generating uh, compounds, and that apparently this produced a great stink, but it <laughs> did not it did not create the spontaneous luminescence. So he could produce marsh gas, but he couldn't find a natural way to get it ignited like that. And whatever the cause of the ignition, it seems like the traditional sightings of uh, the Ignis Fatuus really must not have featured hot flames. Now, you're probably wondering, okay, what's the opposite of hot flames? (laughs) What would the deal be with cold flames? Well, cold flames... um, Cold flames are produced by ether or carbon disulfide when heated to just below the ignition point. Yeah, so they're not exactly cold, mm-hmm. but they're not as hot as flames usually are. Right. So you heat certain substances up to the point where they're almost about to catch on fire, but they don't, and they produce this uh, this sort of halo. Yeah, I've seen it described as a luminescent pre-combustion halo. Um Again, right when the, uh, the the various compounds are heated to just below the ignition point. So, uh, and again, this perhaps this would be due to a natural. Um, this would be a natural product of the, the, the decay in the swamp. Yeah. So this is a possibility that a few people have explored in uh, some experiments. And then there is also a, a parallel possibility. In fact, cold flames might even be an example of this. But the broader concept is chemiluminescence, which would mean glowing or light created by a chemical reaction. 
So it's not exactly fire, but it is chemicals reacting in a way that produces light. For example, the oxidation of those phosphorus compounds we were talking about creating a chemiluminescent glow. Okay. This seems likely to. It's kind of the bioluminescent model, except without the without the direct uh, involvement of an organism. Yeah, and so Alan A. Mills, this uh, one researcher, described how he put together an experiment where he created a glow just by exposing different gases to each other. So he says that he found experimentally, quote, that the entrainment of crude phosphine into natural gas at low concentrations insufficient to cause ignition did result in a cool, glowing cloud visible in the dark. Hmm. However, its color was green, like the glow associated with aerial oxidation of yellow phosphorus, rather than blue. So he's saying that just by mixing together the phosphorus compounds and the natural gas in the dark, in the right concentrations, he got it to glow even though it didn't catch fire. Okay. But it does... It does seem to lend credence to the possibility that, that a different type of chemical reaction could be taking place. We just maybe don't know all the ingredients that are, that are involved. Yeah, yeah. And then there was also another experiment I read about that was done by some Italian researchers more recently. I think it was just seven or eight years ago. Uh, so they just had a container of phosphine gas, phosphine vapor, that they fed with a stream of air and nitrogen. Mm-hmm. And when they did that just right, a like they described, a faint pale greenish light could be seen in the dark. And I think as far as most scientists who have looked into this are concerned, the chemiluminescence is probably the most viable answer uh, to the question today, though it still doesn't seem to fit perfectly, though maybe we should just never expect anything to fit perfectly. Yeah, especially given the the uncertain uh, shape that has been presented by these uh, these varying historical accounts, right? Yeah, because ultimately we're being held back here by the lack of observation of this phenomenon today. And that's another really interesting aspect of the Will of the Wisp. Claimed sightings of Will of the Wisp for some reason have drastically dropped off in the past century or so, almost to the point of some people saying that the Will of the Wisp, whatever it was, is now extinct or or endangered and near extinction. And I think it's really interesting to imagine what could be the cause of this, because as we've talked about, it's widespread enough that we think it is referring to a real thing. It's not mm-hmm. just people imagining it. But what could the thing have been if people generally don't see it anymore. And I do want to point out that you know we're not saying that they've completely vanished, but clearly they used to they used to be more prevalent than they are today. Yeah. Um, I know, for instance, I was looking around and the U.S. Air Force's uh, Project Blue Book that came out in the 1960s um, had to do with uh, UFOs and possible explanations for UFOs. Uh, one major explanation presented by J. Allen Hynek in that uh, was that. Um, Particularly in the rural Michigan area, swamp lights might be the the reason for that people are claiming to see UFOs. Hmm. But then again, UFO sightings are also down uh, today compared to what they were in the uh, uh, in the previous century. So I don't know. Maybe that also plays into this gradual disappearance of the swamp lights. That's interesting because you you see UFO sightings suddenly come into the picture in the 20th century, Mm -hmm. right at the time when the these the will of the wisp sightings seem to largely disappear yet they're probably not the same thing because they i mean they're described in vastly different ways 
Yeah, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if there's a little overlap. And again, we're falling into the potential trap of trying to explain a whole host of different phenomena right. with one explanation. Yeah, I think that's the most yeah. important thing to keep in mind is, again, like we said, the will the wisp might not be just one thing. It might be a sort of center of the road script that a lot of different phenomena are mapped onto. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the big things to, to discuss here, though, in terms of why the will-o'-wisp phenomenon would have faded away is just to, first of all, look at where it's occurring. Most of these accounts have to do with wetlands, marshlands, bogs, yeah. and what has happened to our marshlands in, uh, in in the last couple over the last couple of centuries. Right. If a lot of this folklore is coming out of the marshes of Europe, the, the marshes of Europe have largely been transformed into places where agriculture happens or mm-hmm. into cities or they've been drained, they've been sliced up, yeah. yeah. They 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 are no longer the ecosystem that they once were. Yeah, so if you think of if you think of of uh, the willowist phenomenon as being a phenomenon that naturally occurs, though as something of a, of a rarity, in a large wetland environment, and then it's reduced to a small wetland environment a few centuries later, it seems like you would have have even rarer occurrences. Yeah. That whatever is causing it, be it an organism, be it a particular chemical buildup, the potential for that to to happen is going to be far less. Because we've essentially terraformed our, our planet. We've, <laughs> we've, uh, we've more than doubled the nitrogen cycle. Uh, we've, 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 we've decided to pick and choose what organisms are going to flourish, which ones we're going to do our best to eradicate. Without even knowing that we're doing it most right. of the time. Yeah. And, and marshlands and wetlands, I mean, that is, they've been a real rallying uh, point uh, in recent history of us trying to say, oh, slow down. These are actually important ecosystems, and we don't just need to you know, push them out to the edge of existence. So we've right. lost a number of species already that uh, have made their home in wetlands. Is it possible that we've also exterminated or nearly exterminated uh, something that produces the Willow-West phenomenon? Yeah, I mean, we may have just been watching too many times the documentary Man versus Nature, The Road <laughs> to Victory. <laughs> but yeah, it's essentially along the same lines as uh, something that people have brought up with the idea of terraforming Mars. We think that Mars probably doesn't have any life forms on it today, probably. Mm-hmm. It may have had some in the past, but whether it currently has any strange microbial life surviving anywhere or ever had it in the past, what if by terraforming Mars in the future, by turning it into a suitable Earth-like environment, we destroy whatever pockets of existing life or evidence of past life were already there? Yeah, that's one of the big arguments against terraforming. And uh, and indeed, it's it's one that we have already encountered to a certain degree here on this planet. And I think the underlying concept here is one that several scientists we've referred to have alluded to, which is that the the will of the wisp phenomenon may have a sort of species based uh, origin, like that it, there might be a particular kind of microbial life form or microbial life ecosystem that produces it. There are tiny creatures in the ground that are responsible for the will of the wisps people used to see. Yeah. One of the articles out there uh, floating around uh, is from Howell G.M. Edwards, titled Will o' the Wisp, An Ancient Mystery with Extremophile Origins? Question mark. And, uh, yeah, this basically, the basic concept here seems to be that 
that either the bioluminescence or the biologically discharged gas resulting uh, may be resulting from an extremophile organism that previously carved out a fragile uh, niche lifestyle in swamps and marshes, marshes, but has since snuffed it due to its delicate positioning in the ecosystem. So again, it comes down to the fact that this you have something out there and. Maybe it's uh, in its place in the world is 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 fragile. And then when we start eradicating and cutting down this environment, it all but goes away. It makes me wonder what kinds of strange phenomena other than the will of the wisp could go extinct in the future. What are the things people see today that we might class as paranormal that maybe will mostly disappear in the future. And we might not know why, because we might not know what caused it to begin with. What if we enter a future? Can you imagine a world where people don't see UFOs anymore? Well, we kind of, we kind of live in it already. I mean, I feel like looking at these cases we presented here, you could say that, all right, take the UFO. There are varying reasons why one might see a UFO. Uh, Some of them involve sleep paralysis. Some of them involve mental illness. Some of them involve, um, uh, sleep deprivation, etc. You can make a long list of them. And if, uh, if a certain t- type of swamp gas phenomenon, uh, is, is, is on that list and that becomes eradicated due, env- due to environmental change, then, uh, yeah, that changes how it is perceived. It becomes less an, an object of, of nature and more of a, a mental, uh, uh, existence, more of a mental animal as opposed to uh, a chemical one. Yeah, yeah, and that is interesting because the will of the wisp seems to have largely gone away, but the uh, the phenomenon of seeing lights has not. Right. I mean, we people still see lights. Yeah, we've always seen them, and we're going to continue to see strange lights that we can't explain, but try to. Our brain ends up trying to explain them in the form of hallucination and then also in the form of various cultural scripts to apply to it in retrospect. Okay, but Robert, I want to bring you back to the place we started. Yes. I want to change everything and say you're not a medieval peasant. Okay. You are not out on the fens of medieval England. Good, good. You are yourself, and you are currently out, let's say, hiking in a U.S. national park. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you have a favorite national park? Well, you know what? Let's say let's say state park. Let's go with state uh, park. Let's go okay. with the in here in Georgia because it's a swamp and it's a swamp where people have claimed to have seen uh, marsh lights in the past. Perfect. Okay. okay, so you're you're out walking in the Okefenokee. Uh, you mm-hmm. realize you've you've hiked too far in the late afternoon and suddenly dusk is coming on. and You need to head back in the other direction to get back to the visitor center in your car, but on the way you see some blue lights that are just out of uh, just beyond range out out off the path would you go and investigate really knowing what i know now yeah uh i would probably not no uh, but i feel like i would stop and watch and and hopefully i would watch this phenomenon with a presence of mind that what I'm observing is a rarity the, whatever's causing it has become scarce in the world be it an organism that is dying out, a chemical uh, scenario under the soil that is less prevalent, or, you know, fairies that are leaving the world, or a certain <laughs> damned individual who somehow weaseled his way back into hell. Man, I feel like I have the, I must have the horrible curiosity. I'd have to go to Why would you? They're, you're going to die. But, well, no, no, I'm not. No, that's exactly why I brought it to the modern day. So you don't think that there's a hinky punk out there who's going to lead you off a cliff or into, into quicksand. You think this is probably some kind of natural occurrence? It's something that maybe gas, maybe something you can touch. Maybe you could be the person who has the insight onto 
into what is causing this because you can finally get close and get a good look and catch some in a jar. Yeah, but this is, but as we've discussed, this is not happening in the city. This is happening in the wild and, yeah. and humans. And despite, despite all of our GPS technology, we can still die in the wilderness and we can, <laughs> we can, we can do so fairly easily. There are still alligators in the Okefenokee. There are still bears in other national parks and there's still things to fall off of and, you know, have to cut your own leg off and that sort of thing. Yeah. And that's what the Will-O-Wisp wants to happen. So there you have it. That was our original Will-O-Wisp episode. And now welcome to this special October Coda. We have received lots of really interesting messages over the months in response to that show, and some of them made it onto previous listener mail episodes, some didn't. But I wanted to collect them all in one place so we can get a sense of how this ancient phenomenon appears today. So here we go. This message is from Glenn, and it came in via email. Hey guys, my name is Glenn. I just listened to your Will of the Wisp podcast and I wanted to share an experience I recently had with you. It's mid-October 2015, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and I'm on a date with a girl I was seeing at the time. And I decided to take her to this spot just southeast of Milwaukee in St. Francis. There's a condominium development along the lakeshore that has a footpath running along the backside of the condos following the shore. At the northernmost end of the path, there's a man-made pond that's on a hill, which is surrounded by breakwater that's been rocked off and diverted. So, out to in, it goes lake, rocks, lake water, then the hill, and then the pond. So it's fairly marshy as far as man-made landscapes go. At the edge of the pond, there are some benches that overlook the entire cityscape. Great view. So I take her there, and as we're relaxing, taking in the sight, we can see a blue pulsating light down the hill hovering just along the waterline of the lake. It's a fairly intense light, almost comparable to a small flashing blue LED. At first glance, I thought it may have been a person's cell phone, but this theory was quickly disproved when the light began to rise maybe five to six feet up off the ground and started to float its way up the hill toward us. It was very small, a little bigger than, say, your standard-issue Firefly, (laughs) but the light was much more dense and moved in a much different way than Fireflies do, and it didn't share the yellow glow that a Firefly has. It was a very true blue. It gets to the top of the hill and then begins to float in an undulating motion on a straight course from the west toward the lake to the east, about two yards away at eye level, before it gets over the lake and it's out of vision. So anyway, he says they got a little scared, they decided to leave, and then he said uh, actually another one rose up out of some brush off the side of the path as they were leaving. But anyway, he concludes by saying, I've been searching for an explanation to this scene since that day, and after hearing your podcast, I'm fairly certain that I saw what these accounts claim to have also witnessed. I've returned to the location several times, but have never been lucky enough to see them again. Sorry for the lengthy email. I have a renewed excitement now. It would seem there has to be some substance to what we saw that night. I will add that it did indeed rain a couple of days previous to my story, so maybe there is a correlation. Really interesting, Glenn. Thank you for sharing. Another ghost light phenomenon, this one a little bit different. This comes from our listener, Kelly. And Kelly writes over email to say, 
Hey guys, I experienced something on the mysterious side in the mid-90s that this episode reminded me of. To set the stage, it occurred near my home in the Okanagan Valley, a desert-like valley known for its orchards, vineyards, and tourism. It's in the southern British Columbia interior, just above the border, so above the 49th parallel. I was driving one night along Okanagan Lake from Penticton to Kelowna, and off in the distance there was this eerie greenish glow. It was clear across the lake and on Okanagan Mountain, an area with no development. I didn't think much of it, but I did enjoy its glow for maybe about half an hour, also known as 30 minutes in metric. (laughs) Thank you for the conversion, Kelly. I just thought it was the northern lights giving me a show, but never looked into it. I'm wondering if the Aurora Borealis could explain away some of these experiences. Anyways, as always, keep up the great work. Uh, thank you very much, Kelly. That it, That is interesting. I know people have invoked the Aurora to try to explain it, but it doesn't really seem to match a lot of the reports you hear about uh, more distinct bluish lights hovering near the ground. But uh, that may have something to do with the this sort of larger glow that you claim to have seen. Next, our listener Megan Hutchison writes in to say that she enjoyed the original Will of the Wisp episode, but also to let us know that she drew and co-created a graphic novel called Will of the Wisp with a writer named Tom Hammock. And I won't read her full message because it contains spoilers for the plot, but this story is set in some of the watery places of Louisiana, and it involves a girl who's got to solve a mystery behind a local Will of the Wisp. And I will say that lately I have been dying for some swamp fiction to sort of dive into a satanic haunted swamp with uh, wrathful spirit adventures. And it looks like this book is exactly what I've been hoping for. So I actually ordered a copy. And if you're in the mood for a similar type of wicked thing, especially from the pen of another stuff to blow your mind listener, you might want to look up uh, Megan's graphic novel to see if it catches your eye. It's called Will of the Wisp. So uh, check it out if you're interested. Darren writes to us on Facebook with a great message in which he says some very nice things about the show. He corrects our abysmal pronunciation of Scottish towns and cities and then recounts uh, some strange experiences of his own. So Darren says, particularly wanted to tell you uh, off a Will of the Wisp type situation I experienced last year in Corfu. That's a Greek island. My fiance and I were walking along a beach about 10 p.m. and I noticed a fire snake sidewinding across the water. I naturally freaked out. My fiance, who is Polish, laughed at my fear and told me they were common. She had seen them all the time. Emboldened, I decided to take a picture of the beast. The moment the flash went off, the flame snake headed straight towards me. Now, I'm from Scotland, and we don't have illuminated sea creatures very much. As this creature is heading towards me, I'm getting pretty scared. When it leaves the water, hovers into a tree, and I think I can see a pair of glowing eyes looking at me, well, gentlemen, I don't mind telling you my feet didn't touch the floor until I was back at my hotel, my fiance's mocking laughter following me. And I still don't believe her explanation that it was a firefly. I know I saw a fire snake, man. <laughs> um, I'm not quite sure that fits into the Will of the Wisp tradition, but uh, it's it's close enough that it's worth mentioning. So thank you very much, Darren. Joshua contacts us via email with a bunch of thoughts. I'm going to read some of his comments that relate to the Will of the Wisp. Joshua says, I have a wisp story for you. I was a teenager around 06, 07, either junior or senior year. I was in the Pennsylvania area around Jameson, Pennsylvania, in a development place called Stover Mill, where my two friends lived at the time. 
Uh, and he says it's around the Doylestown, Philadelphia area. At that time in my life, I was a bit of an arrogant philosopher slash atheist who seemingly, in contradiction, believed in the supernatural world of magic. I was with two friends, one who felt she had direct connections to dark forces in the world, and another one who just kind of identified himself as a punk. I had experimented with supernatural stuff, like what I thought at the time was meditation and the like, so I was a bit cocky in the way only a teenager could be. So all three of us were hanging out very late at night, if not early morning, in a well-lit neighborhood-slash-development, that kind of orange light. I know what light you're talking about. In the center of this development was one of those big water-collecting areas with tall grass within it. Now, I can't be certain if it had rained recently, but I'm pretty sure the basin was dry because we had walked the path earlier. So as we were on the curb and just talking, we see a bobbing light, almost as if someone were very slowly skipping. The light was less than half a football field away. When I first saw it, I took a second glance because it looked like the blue light of someone on their cell phone, only too bright. That's the second cell phone comparison I've heard. But anyway, Joshua continues, And in my pants-down awareness, I quickly went through my list of what I was seeing, like, oh, it's someone on a cell phone in the tall grass, which was replaced by, oh, wait, I don't see a body, nor do I hear anyone in the silence of the night. Me and my friends, in our Scooby-Doo fashion, hit the ground an inch closer to try and figure out what we were seeing. Uh, it was strolling along through the grass, first away from us, then it changed directions and started heading our way at its slow pace. I was excited because it meant I could get a closer look. Suddenly, the light went out and all stared in silence, waiting to see... And it appeared again about half the distance it was, closer to us, to which, in our teenage fashion, we ditched and ran out of fear of a ball of light that seemed to come right at us. Uh, And then he goes on later in his note to talk about the concept of blue energy. He says, there is a book called Magus of Java, or Magus of Java, which refers to a person named John Chang, I believe, from a 1988 documentary called Ring of Fire. The documentary is really enjoyable, but the book basically goes into an explanation of martial arts in a fantastical way. It actually sounds a bit cultish to me, a person who stays open to many portrayals of reality as part of my philosophic works. But in one chapter, there's a demonstration of, quote, yang energy that apparently always appears blue. Another interesting point of reference to some mystical blue light MacGuffin. That is interesting. Thank you, Joshua. Our listener Eric writes us by email. He says, Hey, gentlemen, you ask for anyone who's seen the elusive Will of the Wisp. I have had an experience with such an entity. I live in upstate New York, Shenango County. I love to hike on the many Finger Lake trails or any trail that spreads across the woods. The area of land behind where I grew up had several pond, marshy areas connected by a series of streams. Generally just a wet place. No bog or swamp, though. At the age of 14, eight years back or so, I was several miles from home when darkness fell. I know all the woods there pretty well from my copious times wandering through them. It's also hard to get lost. If you walk in any any direction for a little while, you will find a road, not a vast wilderness for sure. I was casually walking on a trail back with the moon as the only light, when off to my right about 300 feet into the woods I see a bobbing whitish blue light. I walked, keeping an eye on it, thinking if there were any houses out that way. There were not. Not only that, but it seemed to be moving parallel to me. 
I thought to myself, I'm not starving or near dehydration. I'm not delirious or mad, but I had a profound skeptical curiosity in the supernatural. I thought it might be a ghost. My neighbor liked to tell ghost stories about people getting lost in the woods by following a large white buck during deer season or a girl in distress that they could never seem to find. I think he just liked to scare me. Anyways, I followed it off the trail, taking note of where I was. I followed it, never seeming to be able to get closer than a 100 feet or so from it, but it looked like a dim blue flame, bobbing and swaying in the dark, dancing around trees, egging me on to follow it. Prevaricating my worst thoughts, I kept following. It meandered through the woods. I had to walk over many little streams and around wet areas where it became hard to pass through. This went on for about an hour before I lost sight. I walked to where it was, and it was the edge of one of the old farmer's fields. There are a lot of old fields that are not near any roads or anything, just isolated in the woods. I saw the bobbing light on the other side of the field. I knew exactly where I was and had had enough and decided to walk home. The road was only a little less than a mile from where I was. I followed the edge of the field to a path at one of the corners, and the light followed me. But at some point during this time, it split off into three smaller bobbing lights. They never went too far from each other. One would get ahead, and the others would quickly catch up. But they went parallel to me till I got to the path, and I couldn't see them in the woods anymore. But I glanced back and saw them at the end of the path after I had walked a little ways in. At this point, I began to walk fast, getting more and more unnerved. They never seemed to catch up, even after I started to run and ran out of breath and stopped to grab my breath. They didn't seem to get any closer, even though I wasn't moving. A few minutes later, I got to the road. I turned back to see if they were still following me. I could still see them, but way farther off than they had been the entire time. I watched them fade back into the woods behind the trees and the brush. I walked home, haunted by what I saw. I never told many people about it because it obviously sounds crazy. I researched it and came across the term Will of the Wisp in later weeks, but had never seen anything saying there were any sightings in the area. I never saw them again, despite many night hikes since then. Well, thought you guys would enjoy one of the more horrifying memories from my confusing, angst-filled adolescence, battling with the existential dread of wondering about life after death and other planes of existence. Anyway, you guys are the best. I enjoy listening to you and other How Stuff Works podcasts. You feed the nerd in me. Well, I'm glad we could do that, Eric. But uh, Eric's message is one that we actually covered in a previous listener mail episode. And when we did that, we wondered what Eric himself made of the experience. So he wrote us again to respond. And this is Eric's second message. I have to say I agree it's the product of a life form that's endangered. I played with this idea a bit and thought how, about how it acted. I think it could be a swarm of small bioluminescent insects, gnats, or some other small fly that become illuminated while they're eating. So maybe they're having a feeding frenzy on microbial life that I or other life forms are kicking up as they get disturbed in wet areas. Think about it. Bats fly near our heads when we walk to eat the bugs we stir up and attract. So maybe this is a similar instance. Possibly a small, curious animal was in the woods and staying near me. I've had this happen with foxes and the occasional coyote. Perhaps I was in the right circumstance to see these small bugs going on a feeding frenzy following a small animal. So when I started to follow it, the animal was spooked, so the bugs followed the animal. When I turned and went back, the animal followed me again, with me kicking up my own microbial cloud, causing them to break off so there were smaller groups. So in a way, there's a fluid dynamic thing 
thing going on. I have to admit, this doesn't have any basis in science, just my creative mind trying to form a hypothesis to something intangible. Ha. Let me know what you guys think. I do think it's some sort of product of a life form that is slowly disappearing. Well, Eric, I know that's been one of the uh, scientific hypotheses that's been offered, but I guess it's hard to really know. I'm I'm somewhat convinced, I think, by the chemiluminescence hypothesis, the uh, the idea that it is a chemical reaction going on with uh, with gases being released from the ground. But yeah, it's hard to know. I, I think there there could possibly be a bioluminescence explanation for some of the sightings, and and as we talked about, I think in the original episode, there could be uh, different types of phenomenon that are being combined under the will of the wisp uh, explanatory rubric that are actually they have different causes. So that's what I think. But uh, I I don't really know. It's still an interesting thing to investigate. In any case, thanks to all of you who wrote in. These were great messages to read and, and a lot of fun to hear about the, the various forms of foolish and spiritual fire that seem to emerge in the outdoors. Anyway, one last thing. If you're a fan of this show, you know how much we love all manner of monsters, ghosts, wraiths, grave ghouls, golems, alligator kings, psychic spider lords, earth rim roamers, saber-tooth witches... Smoke wolves, blooms of Stygian algae, sewer-dwelling vampire magi, wandering blood mushrooms, lead-skinned desert worms, beholders, wasp holders, sentient emerald fog, cybernetic mummies, and so on. And around here, we take every advantage every October to spend some time talking about the science of all things cursed and monstrous. So if you keep up with our new releases, we're going to be getting into the October spirit with plenty of original Halloween-themed episodes later this month. Sharpen your fangs and make yourselves ready. In the meantime, check out all of the latest work at StuffToBlowYourMind.com, where you can find great stuff like Robert's delightful, long-running Monster of the Week series. I love it every time he does one of those, and I'm sure he'll have some more good creatures coming up soon. Also, you can get in touch with us on social media if you look up Blow the Mind or Stuff to Blow Your Mind or some variation thereof on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all of those. All fine places for the eyes that stare through the darkness with no form. If you like the podcast, one way you can help us out is to leave a rating and review on iTunes or whatever platform you listen on. And as always, if you want to talk to us directly to give us feedback on this episode or any other, you can email us at blowthemind@howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. I'm <laughs> sorry.